You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Oakland, California. The once proud Paramount Theater, declared obsolete and in danger of sharing the sad fate of the Fox in San Francisco and the Roxy in New York, now has a new lease on life and a future that looks brighter than ever as the San Francisco Bay Area's newest and finest theater for the performing arts. In 1971, Oakland civic leaders, while studying the feasibility of a new performing arts hall, Unearthed a treasure in the already That clip is from a short documentary produced in the early 1970s to celebrate the restoration and reopening of the Paramount Theater. Even though it's now recognized as one of the most spectacular Art Deco theaters on the planet, the Paramount could have easily been lost, like so many other movie palaces of its era. But instead of meeting the wrecking ball, the Paramount was saved by the Oakland Symphony Orchestra, who were looking for a new home in the late 1960s. See, the Paramount had originally opened in 1931, and there's no nice way of saying this, but by the late 60s, the place was a dump. The carpets and curtains were tattered. The furniture looked like something you'd find out on the curb. The paint was peeling, and the floors, ugh, they were so sticky, if you drop something, you you might not be able to pick it up, even if you tried. But the leaders of the Oakland Symphony realized that beneath all that grime, there was a masterpiece. The architect, his, uh, his name was Timothy Pfluger. He was responsible for some of the Bay Area's most celebrated structures of the pre-war era. And the Paramount was one of his grandest achievements. Today on East Bay Yesterday, we'll get into... Not only how the Paramount was rescued half a century ago, but how it's been maintained in essentially flawless condition ever since then, which is no easy task for a venue that regularly hosts large-scale events. My guest is David Boisel, whose official title is head curator of the Paramount, but is really more like a magician because of the ways that his ingenuity in keeping the theater authentic instantly transports visitors back to the golden age of Hollywood. It's like the second you walk into the theater's radiant, extravagant lobby, you feel like you've entered a time warp. And uh, a big reason for that is because of David's work. But more about that in a minute. Uh, One more quick thing before we get into the interview. A few weeks ago, an article that I wrote about the Paramount and David Boisel appeared in SF Gate which, for those of you outside the Bay Area, is uh, one of the biggest news sites on the West Coast. I'm now writing a monthly series about the East Bay with a pretty heavy focus on local history, and I'm always looking for new ideas. So if you have a suggestion for something I should cover, feel free to drop me a line at uh, eastbayyesterday at gmail. I'll also post the link to my Paramount article on SFGate in the show notes so you can see the amazing photos that uh, the photographer Doug Zimmerman took of this place. Uh, Even if you've seen the Paramount before, even if you've been there, you should check out these pics because Doug really captured it in its full glory. Also, shout out to my very helpful editor, 
Kat Ferguson. Okay, that's enough intro. Let's get to it. Here's my interview with David Boisel about the history of the Paramount Theater. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. So, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell me your job title? Uh, my name is David Boisel, and I'm curator of the Oakland Paramount Theater. Tell me about how this became your job. Like, take me through a little bit of your work history. Uh, walk me down the path that led you to being here at the Paramount. It was a bit by accident. I uh, was working on a historic house in the East Bay Hills here. The owners happened to be a friend of then-manager of the theater, who had been manager during the 1973 restoration. He was finding it hard to get people to come here and do the kind of work he wanted. He was very exacting. And I came one summer, 34 years ago, to do a little touch-up here and there. Uh, He liked my work. Then we had the 1989 earthquake, and I immediately was put on staff and I have never left. So before we go any deeper into the history of the theater and your work here, I want to clarify some terminology. Can you explain to me the difference between restoration and renovation? Well, restoration is putting something back exactly as it was. It's not an interpretation of the past. It's trying to to put things back as they really were. Uh, A renovation is completely different. It can be a complete redecoration. It can be something that's kind of historic looking, but not accurate. We have parts of the building that have been renovated and are not restorations, and we don't pretend like they are, but all the public areas are restorations as close as we can get. So speaking of the being in the public areas of the Paramount, can you explain to the listeners where we are right now? Right now we're in the balcony foyer. Yeah, so looking around, more or less everything we're seeing around us is as it would have looked in the 1930s when this theater first opened? Well, right here, not so much. We jokingly call this the furniture store level because we have so much furniture up here. We have more furniture up here than, the, than this level actually had because several pieces of this furniture came from other theaters. Uh, some of it, like the sofa we're sitting on right now, came from the Alameda Theater. Um, it's about the same age, it's 1932, it's only one year later, and it's another area theater. Um, Had it not been brought here, it was in horrible condition, it would have probably been destroyed. And it's been here since the restoration, since 1973. Some of our furniture, original furniture was missing, so furniture was donated, and that's how we got some of this furniture. We have uh, furniture here from the Alameda Theater and the United Artists Berkeley Theater. And uh, in case you're noticing a little bit of a noise in the background, uh, the theater is being vacuumed right now in preparation for a show that's happening um, tonight, today, today, later today. And the vacuum system is actually one of the things that makes this theater kind of unique. Can you explain um, how vacuuming is done here differently than is done in probably most other buildings in Oakland or even around the world? Well, we have a central vacuum system, and the central vac system was put in when the building was built. So it's actually original to the building. For a while, it was disused. So basically, the vacuums plug right into the walls, is what you're saying. Right. There's little outlets here and there that you'll see, the little round silver things that are hatches. 
and the hoses just attach right into it. Um, for a time, just after the 73 restoration, the system was not being used because there was so much paper and popcorn and stuff in the pipes caught up in elbows in the building. As you can imagine, there's a mile of pipes in the building wow. that are vacuum pipes yeah. that it didn't work. It was all clogged up. Oh we God. got a new Spencer vacuum. The original one was three horsepower. The one we have now is five. If it's not choked down, it'll actually pull the carp the tacks out of the carpet. <laughs> All right, so the, the vacuum system is one of the things that make this theater unique, but I want to take a step back and look at the big picture. The Paramount Theater, you know, it's a gem. It's on all these lists of the most spectacular Art Deco buildings in the country. In your mind, what makes the Paramount Theater particularly unique and special? Well, its entire design is unique. It's, there isn't another one like it. One thing is the ceilings that are backlighted, uh, corrugated sheet metal. It's a patented design that the architect had patented. There isn't anything else like that. The other thing is that a lot of Art Deco buildings are very geometric and zigzag and kind of harsh looking. They're wonderful, but they're very much more jazz age sort of, sort of uh, interpretation. And here you have motifs of nature everywhere. It's a softer look. There's some streamline elements here, definitely, but it's also a kinder, sort of softer, more natural look. I think, you know, people have probably heard the term Art Deco and have like a vague idea of what it means, but how would you define Art Deco? Art Deco is taking motifs and slimming them down, cutting the details, and smoothing them out to a common denominator, basically. We have, if you look closely and you're attuned to design here, you'll find everything in this building. You'll find even some things that look Chinese. You'll find some things that look Greek or Roman. You'll find things that look jungle. You'll find all kinds of things, but it's harmonious anyway, because all of it has been slimmed down to a common, a common theme. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of the Paramount Theater? Why was it built here, and why is it called the Paramount? Well. Paramount was the brick-and-mortar exhibition arm of Publix Theaters. It's P-U-B-L-I-X. And they were, of course, in competition with Fox and with United Artists and other, other chains of their day. So they were building theaters. They were building theaters of a certain size to compete with everybody else that was in big cities. They had a, a large theater in New York City. Uh, they built a chain of five more big theaters. This was the very last of the five that they built. Wow. Um, so this, this arrangement's kind of like similar to the way that studios now want to own their own streaming services. It's essentially like right. vertical integration in terms of uh, owning your own distribution channels. Right. Like Paramount has Paramount Plus now for people, right. you know, so they can basically bring their content directly to right. people without relying on a middleman. Yeah, this, this came at the very, very end of okay. that era. Yeah. It was really almost over before groundbreaking began. Mm. Um, there were antitrust lawsuits making their way through Congress, and it was decided that the movie studios had a monopoly on exhibiting their films. So Paramount Pictures, when they were first-run films, would only be seen at a Paramount theater. Mm -hmm. So you had to go to Paramount to see their film. Mm -hmm. That got broken up, and uh, that changed everything. Uh, distribution, the whole system changed. 
and has, has forever been different. And it was also the end of an era, not only because of the trust busting, but also this was completed essentially in the early days of the Great Depression, which ushered right. in a whole new, This was the end of the Roaring Twenties and the beginning of the, right. the, the down years. Well, the stock market crash in October of 1929 didn't affect Paramount's plans to build this because they weren't invested in the stock market. Mm. They didn't care. And everybody kind of thought maybe the Depression would last about three months. It would be over. You know, politicians were telling them whatever they were telling them. Yeah. Uh, times have never changed. So they really didn't think anything of it. The problem was that Paramount had laid some eggs. They had several really awful films that didn't do well for them. Attendance was down. And what was happening was people weren't going to the movies. They didn't have extra money. They were losing their jobs. They were really afraid. And there was basically a mass panic. That's why you had the banks closed uh, for a time, uh, because there was a run on the banks. So uh, people were pulling their money out because they were afraid. It was panic. 16 and a half million shares of stock sold in a single day. Sold hopelessly, desperately, at any price. It was the forerunner of depression and crisis. Closing time, the close of an era. The great big spree, the jazz age, is over, all over. In the 1920s, the great American word was prosperity. Now the 30s have begun and there is a new word, depression. The theater opened up in the early years of the Great Depression and um, it's had a lot of ups and downs in the century since then. Uh, because it, didn't it close like six months after it opened originally? And it, it did. In fact, uh, from the day it opened, it was actually run by Fox. Paramount was in such financial straits from overbuilding and from bad attendance to their movies that they decided not to run it themselves and they leased it out to Fox. Fox, of course, had the Fox Theater here on Telegraph. They were also running the Orpheum Theater and they also ran the Grand Lake Theater at that mm. time. So they had a whole little chain of theaters of their little mini king kingdom. They basically had it all tied up. For a little while, they tried calling it the Paramount Fox or the Fox Paramount. It confused everybody. Knew, nobody knew yeah. what the heck they were talking about. And so eventually, it just remained as the Paramount. Yeah. Uh, they leased it for a year. At the end of six months, with the live stage shows that they had at the time, and the massive staff that it took to run this place in the way that it was run in those days, it, it basically went belly up. Wow. It was losing money. Attendance was disappointing. And once again, that's because of the depression. People were not buying tickets. So it closed and they did not finish out. They pulled out of their contract with wow. Paramount, basically, with Publix. Um, they negotiated another lease and they reopened again six months later. When you were talking about sort of like how they were losing money, I would imagine that just operating this place must be hugely expensive, uh, not only now, but especially back then with the, uh, you know, huge staff you would need in terms of ushers and things like that. Oh, the staff was enormous. Yeah. Uh, because there were aisle captains and ushers and all kinds of staff. And uh, when the building reopened, the stage shows were gone. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that staff was gone. Mm -hmm. uh, they opened with a, with a minimum of staff. 
by today's standards, they still had a pretty good staff. Yeah. But by the standards of the 1920s, it was very much reduced. Wow. And pretty much all the theaters went through this phase. Uh, stage shows were cut out. The stage shows were a leftover from vaudeville. Uh, mm. You know, before the moving pictures, you went for vaudeville shows, and mm. people kind of expected there to be a stage show. Yeah. And this place was built for a combination of both. It was built with dressing rooms. It was built with a backstage. Yeah. And, and so back then they transferred, or, you know, they switched the programming from away from the stage shows to focus on movies. And now, in 2022, it's kind of the opposite, right? You guys don't really show movies here. It's mostly all live performances, right? Yeah, there's, there's no longer any movies here at all. It's too costly to produce the movies uh, for the attendance we get. Mm. But I will say that through the 50s, there were a lot of talent shows on the stage, mm -hmm. uh, things of that sort. They did use the stage. Uh, in the 30s, there were a few big bands that came through. There were some uh, radio shows that were live broadcast from here, from the stage, uh, several times. That mostly happened in the 40s. Oh. Um, by the 50s, you had talent shows. By the 60s, you had live guest appearances. Uh, stars would come to promote films. Uh, the Paramount was one place that they used to do Hollywood previews for the studios in Hollywood. For some reason, they felt that the audience here was a good mix <laughs> of ages and types of people. And so this was actually used for a lot of previews in oh, its day. By the, later 18, by the later 1960s, that had all kind of faded away. By that time, a lot of people were moving to the suburbs, and the downtowns were really suffering. Uh, when BART came in 1967, that shut the place down uh, to dig up Broadway for a BART. Right, the BART tunnel is just a few feet away from the downstairs bathroom, right? Right. right. <laughs> you can hear the trains go through, actually. It's just a yeah. few feet away. Yeah. So after BART, things were very, very different here. The uh, Fox, which had changed entities several times and had become National General Cinemas, um, they felt that this was just not profitable anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, all the downtown theaters. Uh, the Orpheum was demolished. Uh, the T&D was demolished. The Fox was permanently closed for decades. It was just the fate of these theaters. This one had a slightly different outcome. For some weird reason, everyone always liked this building, and it got protected, which is very much a fluke. And because of that, we have what we have now. Well, before we get into the restoration, I just wanted to talk about the sort of end of that 60s era before they restored it. Because I heard some stories about how they were trying to save money that sound kind of wild and unbelievable now. But, you know, anything could be possible. Like, for example, I heard that the house manager, you know, it's so expensive to light this place because there's so many light bulbs. And so that to save money, they would like either unscrew or tear out light fixtures to save money on electricity. So it was so dark in here, people coming to see movies would bring their own flashlights to find their way around the theater? Well, that was actually, uh, that actually was in the late 50s. Wow. And uh, it was a little earlier than you think. Okay. And they were actually unscrewing light bulbs. Yeah. Uh, they weren't taking out fixtures. Okay. But they unscrewed light bulbs because they were trying to save money. Yeah. Mostly it was because the mezzanine was basically shut off and they were only mm -hmm. using the main floor. So they were darkening the place in order to save money. And there was a joke about you needing a miner's hat to find your way to your seat. And that was kind of what the joke was. That was kind of the original context of it anyway. 
So how bad was it before the restoration? Because, of course, this was during the era when people would smoke inside. So just, you know, layers of tobacco grime, like you said, pipes clogged with popcorn. Can you give me a little, like, bit of a visual flashback of what we would have been looking at before it was essentially brought back up to its former glory? Well, there are two different sets of photographs that are really valuable in understanding what the place looked like before the restoration of 73. There's a set in black and white which were taken for the uh, historic buildings survey. It was a congressional, it's a congressional listing. Um, And so a photographer came and photographed basically everything. Uh, It's all in black and white, but you can see exactly how filthy things are just in black and white. You know, they were selling cigarettes here at the concession stand, and the popcorn machine was belching out oil into the air, and that combination was like having shellac all over everything. There's also a set taken by theater historian Steve Levin. Uh, He came through and took pictures, slide pictures in color, and they've helped me guide some of my work along the way, too. They show the building at the time that the symphony was looking for a new home, and uh, there's even pictures of the symphony performing on stage. It was a trial run to try out the acoustics here. Mm -hmm. They played both this building and the Fox. Now, the difference between the Fox and this building is the Fox was built for silent movies. Mm -hmm. This building was built for live shows and for... The talkies. uh, For the talkies, yeah. (laughs) So acoustics were far more important when this building was built than they were when the Fox was built. So they found by trying out both stages, hands down, this building had better acoustics. And when you're the symphony, you want good acoustics. So that was one consideration. Another one was that the building, aside from being really filthy, was in far better condition. Mm. The Fox was in worse condition to begin with. Wow. So take me through that process of the restoration, because like you said, it was kind of a fluke that this was saved. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think restoration was really a big concept architecturally back then. Um, It was during still that era of out with the old and with the new, you know, it's building, build these gleaming new spectacular structures. And and I think Art Deco is kind of out of style, out of fashion in the late 60s, early 70s as well. So like, there, it seems like there's a lot working against the concept of the Paramount being restored. So how did the stars perfectly align? Who was behind it? And yeah, what brought that into being? Well, uh, the symphony was looking for a home. The Paramount was found to have great acoustics and to be in sound condition. Jack Bethards was their business manager. He said that he would be, he would manage the restoration, he would manage the renovation of the Paramount as long as he got to choose how it was done. It was he who decided that the building would be restored authentically. The Paramount was the fifth movie house conversion to live performance venue in the entire United States. We were number five. Of the five, and I have the list, we were the first one that incorporated as part of that an authentic restoration. So we basically set the pace for decades to come. We, this is where it started. Because most of those other conversions just involved probably what, like gutting the theater and putting in all new, like a whole new look, right? Some of them were massive changes. They would yeah. change the entrance. They would change the decoration. They would change everything. 
And I remember it being said that one big donor for this project refused to donate money because they wanted the building to be painted red, white, and blue inside. Oh. Remember that it was just before the 1976 bicentennial. So everybody was thinking patriotic. They wanted red seats and blue carpet, or maybe it was blue seats and oh, red carpet. I don't know yeah. what. But there was all kinds of talk about that. And so it took a lot of convincing to get people to get on the bandwagon. Today, to think of doing anything else is inconceivable, but at the time, it was really unusual. People didn't take movie palace architecture seriously at all. It was considered kind of a sham. Mm -hmm. um, but again, because of Mr. Pfluger and his local fame, uh, I think that had a lot to do with, with why it was saved was because of who the architect was and his other work around the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. Can you speak to him a little bit? Uh, what else did he do and what made him, you know, such a, such a special treasure to the Bay? Oh, he did lots of great things. One thing that he did was very unusual was that he always integrated the work of local artists in his buildings. And the Paramount is no different from that. Usually, typically, movie palace art is copied from any source you can imagine. It's just, it's just unapologetic copying, 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 copying. This place is unusual in that he hired artists and had artists on his staff who could do any number of, of design projects. And so they designed everything in the building uh, down to the finest detail. And, you know, they would have meetings and he would sort of choreograph all these people and make sure that everybody was kind of working to a theme. So again, going back to the Art Deco thing, uh, to make sure that what they were designing, even though they were different people designing different elements, that somehow they hung together stylistically. Um, you know, he didn't design any decorations for the building at all. That wasn't his job. Mm -hmm. He did the basic layout of the building. Uh, one thing I think that he was crazy about was lighting. I think probably if there's one thing he really enjoyed, it was probably lighting. Throughout all of his buildings, that's a, a major component of, of how the buildings operate. Yeah, but I mean, like, even though he didn't um, carve the panels or design the carpet, it's, it feels like his fingerprints are all over the building. And I'm thinking of things like, for example, uh, one of my favorite rooms is the uh, what used to be the ladies' smoking lounge. And it's the room with the black paint. It, it, it's such an unusual choice to have black walls because that just, you know, on if you when you say it, it sounds like it'd be kind of dark and almost spooky. But um, I feel like that was a cool choice because it, it, I've heard, you know, reading the history that women smoking was kind of new in that era. It was still looked upon as sort of a risque behavior and that sort of dark uh, vibe that the black paint sort of evokes, I think, sort of is like a nod to the kind of naughty behavior that's happening in there. And that was, that's one example of, of Fluger's suggesting to the, you know, the painter that that's the direction they should go in, right? Well, yeah, the, the room uh, is wonderful. It's actually my favorite space in the building. And it's black lacquered. It's all wood. And it's finished just like your piano would be. It's a lacquered room. So in that way, it very much carries forth the Art Deco idea of wonderful materials and things being kind of precious, exotic wood, things like that. In the original design for the room, 
the bands, which are vermilion, were supposed to go all the way around the room, and there were going to be outlets for paintings in there. And somewhere along the line, a little bit later in the design process, Mr. Fluger decided he could get one of his friends to do murals in there. And so it changed from having paintings in the room to having paintings actually on the walls. And uh, Mr. Duncan was hired to do the murals in there. By 1973, the room was in really shabby condition. It had been graffitied up and tagged. And it was one of the rooms that they spent the most money on in 1973 per square foot mm -hmm. uh, because it, it was in such bad condition. And they did a magnificent job restoring it. It's really wonderful. Um, the, uh, well, I, I, since we haven't talked about what's on the murals, I mean, I think that's one of the coolest things about it because it's sort of these uh, people that look like they could be out for, you know, a Sunday in the country. Correct me if I'm wrong because I'm sort of recreating this in my mind from memory, but there's like a sailboat, there's like an island, there's these beautiful dressed people in kind of like 1920s-style garb. And you would think that that scene would have as a background, you know, light blue or white or some kind of like pastoral tones, but they're they're on this shiny black background which gives it like a whole different vibe, like almost they're like floating in space or something. It's, it's true. It's completely the opposite of what you would think it would be. Uh, it's not a sunny day at all. Yeah. Uh, the background is black. But because of the colors used, they have a certain vibe, the way they yeah. work together. And it, it is not oppressive at all. It's not at all an oppressive room. No. no but yeah. it's counterintuitive. You yeah. have a room essentially in the basement with not a single source of natural light, and the room is black. who haven't taken the full tour here might not be aware of kind of how much detective work has to go into some of these elements of restoration that have that have happened here at the Paramount. You know, restoring the sitter isn't just finding an old color photo and figuring out what paint was on that wall and then, you know, trying to match that paint color. You've had to really dig into the records to solve some of these mysteries. Like I'm thinking, for example, of how you found out there was like a statue of a fan dancer on one table because there was like a old photo where there was like a reflection of that statue in a mirror and that was the only evidence of it. What are like some other examples of elements of the restoration that have not been easy to accomplish just because, you know, you've had to really go digging for the source material of, of how it looked back then? Well, there's a uh, curtain in the uh, orchestra foyer uh, between aisles two and three that uh, had vanished. There's only one photograph that really shows it from a rather oblique angle looking down the foyer in 1932. There's a photograph of it, which I enlarged quite a lot. I have an interest in archaeology. I have had all my life. And uh, by going up on a ladder and inspecting the wall closely and shining a light across the, the wall, I could find the place where the curtains were mounted on the wall, the holes that had been filled in. And so uh, I knew exactly how tall and how wide the curtain had been. Even though the photograph was taken at a funny angle, there was no doubt about exactly where it had mounted. 
And so I used that evidence and the photograph. The photograph showed the fabric fairly clearly, but of course the photograph was in black and white. And measuring the wall measurement between the top of the curtain and the floor, and measuring the, the image on the photograph, I could determine how big the pattern was in the fabric. And in about a year's time, I had found a fabric that very closely mimicked the fabric shown in the curtain. In fact, if you look at the historic photograph that's mounted on the wall down there and you look at the curtain, that's pretty much what you see. As far as the color is concerned, I have no idea what the original color was. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Uh, we chose fabric that coordinates with the carpet and with the wall behind it, mm -hmm. because that makes sense. It, it looks very good with everything, and that's, that's really the main thing. So it sounds like in order to do your job, you have to bring a lot of different kinds of skills to the table, so to speak, uh, historian, painter, uh, I'm assuming you know about upholstery, wood, like, I mean, there's so many different materials. Can you expand on that? Like, what, what are all the different kinds of skills and sort of specialties that you need to kind of be an expert in in order to accomplish your job at the level that you're trying to accomplish it at? Well, uh, Part of it is uh, finding people who can do things for you and uh, <laughs> that they don't mind me bugging them all the time because that's what they're going to get because I want to see it done a certain way and that's what I always insist on. I always say that uh, when you come through the building, it should look like it was always just like it is. It mm -hmm. shouldn't have my stamp on it. If it had my stamp on it, it wouldn't be restored. And so uh, I've always used local craftspeople whenever I could. Uh, most all the work has been done locally. We've had some furniture reproduced locally in a shop just a few blocks away here in Oakland. Uh, the lady who's done curtain making for me is uh, here in the East Bay. I've had some fabric printed custom for me. That was done in San Francisco. The upholstery shop that we use today is the same upholstery shop that did the work in 1973. Yeah. Uh, they're in their second generation now of working for us. So I very much believe that you should have work done locally as much as possible. I've had some metal casting done here in Oakland. I really prefer to have it local if possible. Is, is that unique to the Bay Area to be able to find all these skilled specialty artisans within, you know, a 50 mile or 100 mile or whatever radius of this theater? Because it just feels like some of these craftspeople have got to be a little bit of a dying breeder. I mean, are there new generations of furniture restorers and upholsters and like all these kind of specialties coming up in the industry? Or are most of the people who you're tapping to do this work, like folks who are like in their 60s and 70s and 80s who are kind of like the last of a generation of, of artisans? Well, the current upholsterer is the grandson of the one that did the work in 73. So he's probably not yet 40, so he's got a while to okay, go yet, okay. but his children are not interested in the business. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those kind of things where mm -hmm. I don't know what the future holds down the line. Uh, in my time, I think we'll be fine. Uh, where we'll end up after that, it's hard to say. Gotcha. What about the elements of the theater that can't be restored because uh, maybe the materials don't exist anymore, some of these rare kinds of woods, or maybe it would just be impossible to restore like a broken light fixture or something like that. What are some of the ways that you've sort of imitated the original items 
um, that just couldn't be sort of, you know, cleaned up and given a new coat of paint or something like that? Well, we've not really had that problem. Uh, we have broken glass periodically. Uh, we do have people that do the etched glass for us. Um, I've had uh, some, some furniture adventures with regard to veneer. Okay. Uh, the Macassar that we have here on some of our furniture is old growth Macassar. Uh, which is not legal to log now. Never even heard of Makassar. It's an exotic wood uh, from northern India. Okay. And um, it's a beautiful, very striped wood. It's still available, but the new growth wood doesn't have the black streaks in it. Mm. So for the sofas downstairs, I had to have it dyed to look like it looked like it. And you can look at a piece of the original right next to it, and you can't tell. So that mm -hmm. was the artisan uh, who was doing the finish work for me, gotcha. who was doing that. That was all brushed in by hand, the dark streaks. Well, and I don't want to, you know, give away any of your trade secrets, but I heard there might have been a, a salad bowl involved in one of the light fixture restorations. Is there any truth to that story? Well, there actually is. Uh, on the, in the mezzanine lounge, in the mezzanine public lounge, uh, the light fixtures had a lot of pieces missing. A lot of pieces were broken. And they found that a, a glass salad bowl of a certain size was the right size to make a dome. And they had the bowl cut in half and drilled, and it, it made up the top of the light fixture. If you're not told, you would never know that. Um, since then, I've had some blown glass done. Uh, in fact, I had it done here in Oakland uh, for light fixtures that we're looking at right now. And so uh, since 1973, there actually has been a bl glass blower here. Wow. So instead of resorting to a salad bowl, I was able to actually get, <laughs> I was actually get, able to get them properly uh, yeah. blown. And that's essentially um, like a perfect recreation of the original or more or less? Uh, it is. Uh, wow. We yeah. had one original, and so we had wow. one to have copied, which we were lucky. Wow. What's the hardest part of your job? I don't know that there is a hard part. I think the, I think the, the trick is figuring out how to do something mm. um, and not leaving too much of your own imprint on it. Uh, as I said, it's it, you shouldn't walk here through here and think that I was involved. If you think that, then I'm, I've not done my job very well. That's how I feel about it anyway. Well, I guess then not hardest, but what have been sort of the big, some well, of the biggest challenges? People always think that my job's creative, and it's not really. Huh. The creative part of the job is figuring out how to. Okay. That's the creative part. And so a lot of what people say, wouldn't, it, wouldn't this look cool, for example, is a, is a thing that I hear all the time. Well, that isn't how it was, and it might look cool, but that wouldn't be right, mm. if that makes any sense. No, it totally makes sense. But I'm, so, I mean, obviously you have a lot of artistic skill, but you're sort of sublimating your own sort of creativity in service of this quest to perfectly restore this building. So, I mean, yeah, what, what drives you to focus your abilities on this ongoing project that you've been involved in for more than three decades now? Uh, just the just the pleasure of being here and the pleasure of the building. I, obviously, if you don't love something like this, there's no point. Um, so I think that's mainly it. Yeah. 
Were you, have you always been sort of, uh, you know, attracted to like antiques and old buildings? Is this like a lifelong thing for you? Oh, always. All my life. Yeah. Do you remember what got you into it? Not really. Uh, I began working on antiques and, and restoration in high school, actually. So I've been doing it for a long time. My first, uh, my first commission for stenciling, which way back in the 70s was very popular, I'm dating myself now, uh, my mom drove me to because I didn't have a license yet. Uh-huh. So I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. What kind of uh, antique work were you doing in high school? Or what kind of restoration work were you doing back, back then? I was returning chair legs and things like that. I was taking woodworking classes, so I was doing, uh, I was... I was replacing pieces for furniture, turning chair legs, things like that. Wow. You know, other kids were making little boxes, and I was turning chair, le- turning <laughs> chair legs. It's, it's. I was a strange kid. Did you go to college for, or did you have like I a did. degree in any of this? Stuff? I went to college. I went to school and have a degree in commercial art or advertising art. Uh, computers came to the classroom literally the year after I graduated. By the time the ink was dry on my certificate, it was no good. But it didn't really matter because I really didn't think that was the direction that I was going in. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the commercial art uh, work has been useful to me uh, for photography, uh, for making the history displays that I make. I, I use those skills often here, uh, but in a different way than they were intended to be used. So I, the experience was great. Did you go to school around here? No, I'm from Ohio originally, far oh, away. From Ohio, what part of Ohio? Uh, Urbana, which is west central Ohio. It's nice. about west of Columbus by about 60 miles. Okay, so oh, when did you uh, end up out in the Bay? Uh, I came here in 78. Yeah. And did you already have work when you came here? Or did you come here and... I did. I had work. My first job was with a, a, a kitchen remodeler, hanging kitchen cabinets. I had some carpentry skills from all those classes. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think I did about four kitchens with him. Mm-hmm. And it was a good experience. I know how to hang cabinets. But again, it wasn't the direction that I was headed in. Yeah. And um, I soon found my way to... Uh, people who had a wonderful vintage house that they wanted vintage finishes in from doing their kitchen and uh, and that made my way here and wow. and I've worked in many other historic buildings around the area since then oh. not just here so you started doing residential vintage work and right. restoration right. and then sort of worked your way out to essentially yeah, like one of the most spectacular I've done things. a lot of work in Victorian houses. Okay. I do work in not just art deco things, but all styles of things. I'm interested in all styles of things. So it's not just this kind of thing. Gotcha. Uh, there are many other things that are in my, in my repertoire too. So you've still got some side projects outside of the Paramount? Always. 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 This is a part-time job. Mm-hmm. This isn't a full-time job. Okay. All right. Um, So I heard that in the in the early '70s restoration, there did have to be some modifications to the original design uh, to fit the changing times. For example, uh, people in the 1970s were a little bit bigger than people in the '30s, so the chairs had to be made a little bit wider. Uh, Are there any other changes that have had to be made, you know, then or since then, to kind of accommodate changes in in society? Well. 
we had to have a box office that worked for uh, live ticketing, uh, live venue ticketing. And so the uh, box office that we have now, which is on 21st Street, was constructed where there hadn't been anything. And so that was an alteration. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing um, there's been probably a couple other little changes too, like I'm going to go out on a limb and say that those hand sanitizer stations weren't part of the original <laughs> 1930. Well, it's a sign of our times. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, we also don't have ashtrays anymore all over the place. Yeah, so, you know, things change. Yeah. You know, we went from ashtrays to hand sanitizers. So, <laughs> and, and we have uh, recycling cans, yeah. you know, for recycling. Right. So, you know, things have to adapt. That's just the way it is. It's sure. a matter of how gently they adapt. Yeah, yeah. Is it ever, because, you know, we've been talking about how this is sort of an ongoing project, things that you've done years ago, you're having to kind of like redo or update. Is it ever kind of frustrating, the fact that it's a never-ending project, that every time you get everything perfectly in order, there's always going to be another element that needs to be fixed or repaired or updated or restored? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, the, the, the restoration in 1973 was really top drawer as far as they could go. They had a limited budget and they had limited time. Uh, they had a year to do the work and they had a million dollars. Which today, seems like nothing. Today that's nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's 1973 dollars, yeah. you know, which was a lot more at the time. Uh, maybe like about five now or something like that. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, they, they did a magnificent job as far as they went. And they did most of it. Um, it's just that they didn't... They just didn't have the funds to do all of it. And so I'm, I've sort of continued the process. The restoration of the Paramount to its former splendor is an exacting responsibility, not only to art, but to history. And no effort was spared, no detail overlooked to preserve forever this monument to a magnificent era. Here then, with a dedicated pledge to preserve for generations to come this unique heritage of architecture and art. The Paramount Theater of the Arts stands proudly once more. Good luck, Paramount. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. Special shout out to everyone at SF Gate and also the Paramount Theater. If you want to take a tour of this incredible building, check out the Paramount's website. I, uh, I went on a tour with a guy named Ken Marcus a few months ago, and it was a fantastic experience. Highly recommend it. Also, huge thank you to those of you who are supporting this show on Patreon. Your donations are so, so appreciated. I really wouldn't be able to keep doing it without you guys. If, uh, if anyone else wants to be a supporter, please hit the donate link at eastbayyesterday.com. While you're there, you uh, might want to sign up for my newsletter where I share updates about local history and my upcoming events. I think my first event in 2023 is going to be a live Q&A with Ali Winston and Darwin Bond-Graham, two local journalists about their new book regarding the history of the Oakland Police Department. 
and uh, specifically the notorious rider scandal uh, from about 20 years ago. You won't want to miss that event. And uh, please follow me on social media as well. I also share news about my upcoming events on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Music for this week came from a very old film called, appropriately enough, Paramount on Parade. And uh, that's going to do it. If you like the show, spread the word. Tell people about East Bay yesterday. Uh, Again, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully I'll be seeing y'all soon.